Welcome, my name is Loriana Hernandez Aldama, two-time cancer survivor and patient advocate, and you are listening to Stage Free, a place where we help cancer patients find the tools and resources they need to master survival. Cancer survivorship begins the day you are diagnosed. Over time, you may beat it or you may learn to live with it. Whatever the outcome, you probably wanna talk about it, and that's where we can help. Each week, I will share my insights and personal experience along with notable experts and cancer survivors. Together, we can help patients navigate the complicated road all survivors must travel. The goal, we want everyone to have an equal chance to not only survive, but most importantly, to thrive. Welcome back to Stage Free, where we help you master survival. Well, each episode, we give you insight and information to educate you and empower you on your cancer journey so you can be an equal partner in your own success. Today's topic is what I call the darkest secret of cancer, sex and intimacy after cancer. And my guest today is amazing. You're going to love her. Her name is Dr. Sandra Reed, OBGYN at Emory University in gynecology with a special interest in menopausal care for cancer survivors with more than 35 years of experience. She is also my GYN and has treated me in survivorship post-leukemia and breast cancer. And I have to say, she is so patient-centric and I have cried on your shoulders so many times in your office and I can feel how much you care about your patients. So Dr. Reed, thank you for having us and having me um, joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. This is a topic that's very dear to my heart. Um, as a, I really started getting interested in this as I started through menopause myself and started seeing patients at Emory uh, that were cancer survivors and that were suffering from menopausal symptoms. Um, and then I also had uh, breast cancer myself and had to have my patch ripped off my progesterone IUD pulled out. Um, so I experienced that as well. And it was just, uh, the timing was almost consistent with my interest and then me getting it. And then that made me doubly interested in taking care of this segment of patients. I had no idea. I don't know if you told me, maybe I was crying because I always cry in your office, but I didn't know that not only are you amazing doctor, so patient centric. And when I say that, that means that you know, you're, you're very involved with the patient when you're compassionate, but that you're also a survivor and a warrior. So no wonder you understand me and understand us even better. I yeah. didn't know that. Well, congratulations. I don't talk about it a lot um, because, you know, when I'm in the room with my patients, it's about you. Um, but I do have that experience that I can share with patients um, if I feel I think, like I need to. I think you should share it because it helps us feel like you get us. And no wonder you get this. I always tell people about you saying, there is this doctor, Dr. Reed, she gets me. She lets me cry. And especially to talk about what we're going to talk about today, the elephant in the room that nobody warns you about after you survive cancer. Not only are you in a mind and body you don't recognize, but it doesn't work the same. And it's the S-E-X, the word sex, the actual act of sex. It impacts the intimacy with your partner. So you go through cancer you're depressed because your body doesn't look the same. It doesn't feel the same. You're, you may have lost your job. You have mounting bills. And then you, sex sucks. It hurts. It's not the same. And nobody warns you of that. I mean, I wouldn't have said like, oh, no, I don't want chemo and radiation. I needed to live. So I wasn't going to weigh those options that way. But nobody tells you. 
You know, I think we're getting more patient-centric as far as the entire patient, including that aspect. And actually, I met with our um, medical oncology team and, and just expressed the same thoughts that you just expressed. Send the patients to me. Let me have this conversation with them before they get into the situation where they go through a, an abrupt menopause. Let me talk to them and explain to them what they need to look for. And there are treatments and options available um, to be able to take care of those symptoms before you are five years down the road. And then it's harder to recover uh, the vaginal tissues from the lack of hormones uh, can be done, but it takes patience. But if, if a patient's informed up front and knows what to look for, it empowers them then to recognize it and come have the conversation. That's what we're trying to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is what we're trying to do. We're trying to empower patients. And it's so important because, well, for me, they had to medically induce menopause. I was going through leukemia. I was in the hospital for an entire year and I had no platelets and so my blood wouldn't clot. They're like, you can't have your period. They stopped my fertility treatment to have a second baby. So there were so many things going on. They're like, poof, we're going to put you in menopause overnight. So even if you're not ready for menopause or if it happens overnight, like it did for me, or it's going to happen gradually, what, regardless what cancer you're saying that when you have chemo and radiation, though that alone is a factor to cause like vaginal dryness. Right. Yes. Um, the chemo and radiation actually affects the ovarian function um, because it, it's a systemic drug. So it's going to shut down your estrogen formation. And the estrogen is the uh, hormone that women lose when they go through menopause that causes most of the symptoms. But there, there are treatments um, available and it depends on the individual. It depends on the cancer that uh, you're being treated for. Um, you know, some of the ways that we treat those severe symptoms is with ADVAC therapy. If you can take estrogen and you, even though you're shutting your body down and you're not having a cycle, we could cover you with very low dose estrogen to help you with some of those symptoms that you're having. I want to jump in on that because um, well, I have so many questions for you. My, my, the wheels in my head are just spinning, but there are also studies saying that there is a connection, a potential connection between hormone replacement therapy and breast cancer. And there was a study in, in early 2000 that because their potential connection since then, more and more people have stopped hormone replacement therapy and the numbers of breast cancer cases have come down. It's still one in eight women, but the numbers have come down because of stopping that. So, so that the study that you are referencing is the um, Women's Health Initiative. It was around 2000. You're correct on that. And the uh, study was designed to determine the, the big question that that study was trying to get at was whether or not estrogen therapy benefited patients with cardiovascular disease. Was it cardioprotective? Now, 
um, they had spinoff secondary goals for the study. And one of those was to look at the patients and what happened with the breast cancer. And they were monitoring patients through the study. About seven years into the study, they noticed a bump in the number of breast cancer cases in uh, patients who were on an oral uh, estrogen and progesterone combination. In the arm of the study that uh, was estrogen only, there was actually a slight decrease and they could not explain why. So they stopped the study at that point. They continued the arm of the study that was on estrogen only. So it looked like it was a combination of estrogen and progesterone uh, that increased the risk uh, in that study. But you also have to look at the average age of the patient in the study. They were over 60 years old. Um, if you look in the arm of the study of those patients that were closest to menopause, those risks were not as high. Um, so you have, we've done a lot of studying on that study and analysis and reanalysis. Um, and it, it's complicated, but if you divide the hormone use uh, in the average patient by age group, it appears that it's very safe to use within the first six years of a patient going through menopause um, and up to about 65 Okay, but I want to, oh, go ahead. I'll let you finish that thought before I jump in. No, jump in. Okay, so getting back to the, the sexual issues. Right. For patients who've had chemo and radiation, and then they're put on because we're hormone positive, like I'm ERPR positive, estrogen, progesterone, positive type of cancer. Then we're put on uh, hormone, I mean, a hormone therapy, hormone receptors, Right. drugs you can't name the the type of the names of drugs but it's the type of drugs which suppress your hormones completely so now we have no estrogen it's at zero no progesterone and you've had chemo and radiation that's like four things it's nothing more i mean it just sends you down a dark rabbit hole uh, from a sexual standpoint i remember i was reading something the other day that said one area is helping patients and i read this with sarcasm it says one area of life that cancer and treatment might change is the ability to have or enjoy sex. This is sometimes referred to as female sexual dysfunction and can affect you physically and emotionally. And I'm like, yeah, really? What, like newsflash? No, like my doctor, I love him, world renowned from Johns Hopkins, but a male. And I felt like he was like holding his fingers over here going la 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 la, like we're not gonna talk sex. He did say after my cancer, he can't have oral sex for this amount of time but never said, by the way, sex is going to be excruciating, painful. And, and you should get into therapy with your partner, which I did, but then you need to fix the problem. And how do you fix it? The way you fix it is dependent on the patient. But if you have an estrogen and uh, progesterone receptor positive cancer, most likely we are not going to put you on a hormone that contains those two. There are some new medications available that appear to um, have receptors only in the vagina. Um, it's a CIRM, uh, it's an oral tablet, and patients get really good relief. It is not FDA approved for patients with breast cancer, 
But the information that we have gained on the use of that medication since um, the FDA approved it um, actually indicates that patients do not have an increased risk of breast cancer. They get really good um, urogenital uh, atrophy control. And in some, depending on the dose of the medication, um, some patients even get a increase in their libido. And, oh. but if you were my patient and you came in, we're going to start with a non-hormonal approach first. We're going to rehab the vagina. And some of the things that we do to do that are topical moisturizers every day, obviously lubrication during sex, but you do not want to do any of the lubricants with alcohol in it. It's a drying agent. It's going to make it worse. Um, and also there are products that you can use that have all your own in them. They're topical. You insert them into the vagina. It helps to rebuild the collagen, just like the hyaluronic acid products you put on your face to get um, the wrinkles to go away. Um, it actually rehabs the vagina in the same fashion. So um, go ahead. When you're talking rehab the vagina, um, looking at research shows that half of survivors of breast cancer and other cancers develop long-term sexual problems. It's actually caused by the treatment, maybe not the cancer itself. So you're saying all of us need to go so through a sort of rehabbing of the vagina. And some people might be listening saying, okay, this sounds crazy. And, you know, I'm not going to go rehab my vagina. Or maybe some people say after cancer, they don't want to have sex. I, I do. But there are other people who are not interested. And they're like, well, I'm not going to rehab it because I'm not having sex. And that's where I find telling women, you still need to rehab it. So can you explain why we need to rehab it regardless and what rehabbing is? The um, process, whether you are being treated for cancer and have urogenital symptoms or just if you have severe menopausal symptoms, um, the symptoms are the same. And the way we rehab the vagina is to use the moisturizers every day. Um, it helps to prevent other things, even if you're not sexually active. Uh, it's painful. Uh, I've had patients come in and just going to the bathroom to urinate and wipe themselves, their skin tears. Um, and these are the things that will happen over time if you don't use some of these precautions. It doesn't happen to every patient, but it happens to a significant number of patients. And so you need to do these rehabs just like you moisturize your skin. You need to moisturize the vagina. Um, you can use coconut oil. You can use topical olive oil. You can use the um, the uh, hyaluronic acid inserts. Um, and even vibration therapy to the vagina helps to increase the vasculature to the skin and will help with the collagen formation as well. So I want to back up. We're going to get to all those parts that you just talked about. <laughs> so you're talking about the rejuvenation. You're talking about the, the vaginal suppository or vaginal insert. There is a company that has this great product, but I remember crying to you when our, our bills, because they go in waves of having way too many bills saying, I can't afford $65 a month just to rejuvenate my vagina. I'm going to have to do it myself because, and then I, I always, with everything I go through, 
my old thing is that I talk about the underserved. Like some people, $65 is between their light bill and rejuvenating their vagina for $65 a month. And that's just unacceptable. So we're just going to help the women who can afford it. And to that, you were saying, I love the story about the coconut oil and the ice cube tray. Can you expand? <laughs> on? So one of the ways that you can do it yourself, your DEI for the rejuvenation of your vagina is to get a small ice cube tray, um, put the uh, um, coconut oil in the ice cube tray and put it in the freezer and make your own suppository and then stick it into the vagina with your finger. It will melt, it will coat the vaginal um, surface. Some will run out, so you'll need to wear a pad. Do this at night so you're not dealing with um, sticky underwear or having to wear a pad all day. Um, and then you've done it. That's it. And you put drops of, I was just telling a friend about this. I'm like, I just talked to Dr. Reed and this is what she says. And she's just, just ordered, um, the, the ice cube trays. And she said, there's actually a pill ice cube tray that she ordered off of Amazon and she's going to do it. But she was looking at the ingredients of the drug. That's the not drug, but the, over the, the medication that's $65 a month. And she said, it also has hyaluronic, hyaluronic acid. Am I saying this correct? Yeah. So yes. she would want to know, can she add the droplets of that to the coconut oil and freeze it together, like making her own little pharmacy? Sure. As long as there's not something else in that product that's going to um, uh, be make a, your vagina sensitive to it, such as a stabilizer, or uh, sometimes they put... Um, uh, chemicals in these drugs to stabilize and and increase the shelf life. And mm -hmm. sometimes that can be irritating to the vaginal mucosa. But if you've got pure hyaluronic acid oil, absolutely. You can mix the two and use it. Amen. This sounds fantastic. And, and there's I think also I a there's also a pharmaceutical grade suppository that is is approved by the FTA for um, treatment of vaginal irritation, dryness, and painful intercourse. Um, a lot of the insurance companies do not like to cover this medication, but if you are a cancer survivor and you cannot use estrogen therapy, a lot of times we can get this approved with an appeal. And it's a, it is a suppository, you use it every day and it's covered under the insurance. Not all insurances cover it, but some do. And unfortunately, if you don't have insurance coverage, it's, it's very expensive. So then I'm going to send you back to the coconut oil um, suppositories. The, well, hearing that this may not get covered just pisses me off because, again, I'm always advocating for the underserved. And if, if there is something that, I mean, I love the coconut oil and the ice cube tray just for fun. I might go make it. Um, but, um, I've also tried the one, the company that's $65 a month. However, you also tell me that this is not just about, I mean, of course, having a great sex life and having, enjoying your sex life and not feeling like razors are going through you, right. important. but this goes be having, making sure you don't have vaginal atrophy, making sure that there's, that it's, uh, moisturized is not just about sex. You're telling me that it could impact a gynecological exam. It could impact their ability to find out if you have cancer, because if you can't have an exam done, 
So right. tell me some of the other repercussions, because there are a lot of women after cancer who are like, you know what? I, I, I had, I'm not, I'm not going to use it. I don't need it. Forget about it. I had it. a friend, I had a friend um, who went through leukemia with me and literally one day, a few years ago, she called me and she said, you know what? I just told my husband, I love you go have sex with somebody else because I can't, I can't do it. And she was crying and she said, I can't believe I just told my husband this. And I said, but you, you know, I was trying to educate her on the other options that you right. shouldn't just like throw your marriage away and just give up. Um, it, it was really painful to hear her cry, but I understood where she was coming from. Right. Um, but again, can you expand on why it goes beyond the intimacy and it, it's for your overall health? Yeah. It, um, for most patients, pelvic exams, regardless, um, are not real comfortable. It's awkward. Uh, you naturally tighten those vaginal muscles uh, when somebody starts coming at you with a speculum, uh, and it can be very intimidating. But if you've got urogenital atrophy, it's downright painful. Um, and you've already been traumatized with the diagnosis and the treatment. And then you have to go through this and it can be quite painful. So, and pap smears are still something that we need to do uh, for evaluation of the patient for uh, potential cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, we usually uh, diagnose by exam. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's an option to keep the vaginal mucosa more pliable but also frequent urinary tract infections occur when the uh, vagina is too atrophic. It affects that entire area and the tissues get more friable. Um, the distance from the vagina to the urethra gets closer because those tissues collapse and patients can get more frequent urinary tract infections and by rebuilding those tissues and moisturizing that tissue, it makes it more pliable so that they're not as at high of a risk for the um, bladder infections. Wow, that's fascinating because I always hear about, well, if you're having too much sex or having, you know, some people who have sex get UTIs all the time. Some people, and now I'm hearing that it does, it's not all about sex, that you can still get UTIs because of the atrophy from the vaginal atrophy. Right. You were telling me what we um, were talking yesterday, preparing for this wonderful podcast called Stage yeah. Free. You were telling me that there are some patients that you give, you can get an antibiotic for the right. day when you have sex. Can right. you explain more about that? Yeah. Um, they, in some patients, just the act of having sex can cause frequent UTIs even before you go through menopause. Um, and if you are one of those patients that have recurrent UTIs, um, and it seems like, darn it, every time I have sex, I get a UTI, we can treat you with a suppression dose antibiotic. You take it the night of sex and the morning after, or the morning of sex and the night after, um, and it will help decrease the frequency in which you get those uh, urinary tract infections. Also, regardless of who you are, if you're, if you're half of urethra and a vagina, you need to empty your vagina into your bladder after you've had sex. And that's just a cleansing, um, to help keep the bacteria at bay. And it helps to, um, not introduce that bacteria into the bladder. 
But also you're saying if you're not having sex and you're getting a lot of UTIs, that's a sign of muscle. I mean, a vaginal yeah, atrophy. It can be. So do they, those patients need that pill too? The they one can. time? Okay. Yes. Yes. And I, I have patients that they come see me and I give them a year's worth of, um, of uh, antibiotic. I, you know, I give them 30 if they're having sex every night. <laughs> They they might need more. Survivor (laughs) must not be a cancer survivor if they're having sex every night, because they're going to need to make a lot of ice cube trays of coconut oil and hyaluronic. Exactly. (laughs) I want to know who that person is if they're post. I do too. It's everybody's fantasy, (laughs) right? Including my husband's. Um, So the other thing you were talking about is the vibration therapy. I've heard people going to pelvic floor therapy at like physical therapy of the vagina at like, uh, you know, doctor's offices, but you're saying you can also, I don't know if this is the same thing, but I guess you can do it yourself with a dilator. Can you explain that? So pelvic floor physical therapy is often used in patients with urogenital symptoms, with painful sex, with um, frequent urinary tract infections, pelvic pain, and, and there are specialists who do um, pelvic floor therapy for patients. Um, and it's a combination of a lot of exercises and, and vibration therapy that you can use to um, help make those tissues stronger. Um, it works very well with incontinence. Um, so that's a legitimate uh, service that physical therapists that specialize in pelvic floor therapy offer. Um, you have to see your physician and be referred. Most insurance companies pay for it. Some do not. Uh, and primarily your Medicaid plans do not cover it. Um, but the active vibration helps to stimulate the blood flow to the vagina. So one of the other things that happens during the urogenital atrophy from chemotherapy and from aging is that those tissues shrink. And if you don't use them having sex, they can shrink to the point that it's very painful. Um, Just using a dilator, a vibrator um, will help to stimulate the blood supply to Uh, the pelvic floor area, increase the vascularity, increase the collagen formation and help rehab that the skin. Because basically what happens physiologically when you go through menopause or when you have a forced menopause because of cancer treatment, um, those tissues get very, very thin. Uh, And they, it's a, it's a tissue that's used to moisture and it gets dry. Um, And if you look at the layers of the skin under a microscope of someone who has estrogen and someone who doesn't, there's multiple layers of skin. The women who have gone through um, uh, menopause or cancer treatment, that layer of skin is extremely small. You're down to the very surface layer and we call that the basal layer. You've lost all of the collagenation of the top layers, the keratin, 
And that's what helps cushion the skin and make it more pliable. So now you're down to the very lowest layer in the skin. Um, and it feels like when you have sex, it feels like you, you're someone's got sandpaper up in there. Yeah. Um, so, and it, it is painful. So these things that we're talking about helps to regenerate those skin layers so that it's less painful. But part of that process is that the actual vagina can get small. Uh, and that's where the use of dilators and vibrators can also help just to make those tissues more pliable so that when you do have sex, it is less painful. Well, and again, it's not all about sex as well, that if the vaginal wall or the area closes and you, and it's not moisturized or whatever, I can't remember, can't remember, I'm just so fascinated with this conversation, that it can lead to other health problems. Like you right. said, cancer is a long-term medical illness. Like it's a, it's like a chronic disease state that we're in. So right. we have to, if you're not going to go to pelvic floor therapy or you're not having sex with your partner, then you need to get first, get out an ice cube tray and make your coconut oil trays, yeah. make your vaginal suppositories and get a dilator vibrator and use it for the good of your own health. If, yes. if anything at all, so you can have a pap smear and get an exam. But if you're yeah. either way, there are other people saying also when they use that, they tend to get also UTIs because maybe bacteria gets on the dilator and it has to be washed with soap. So again, then they'll need that pill. Right. So if you are using the dilators or vibrators and you are getting frequent urinary tract infections, I would treat that patient with the suppression therapy when they use the dilator. And you may only have to take it that one time, um, depending. And, and this is um, something that the patient can engage their own treatment with. If they take a tablet right after having or use the vibrator, and it only takes one for them, that's great. If that keeps them from getting recurrent UTIs, they also need to go to the bathroom afterwards so that they can drain their bladder and kind of flush the bladder. Um, so these are, how say often again. They, if they're not sexually active with their partner, how often should a cancer survivor use a dilator and how for how long? Because it really depends on where they are in this process. Um, Two to three times a week for just a few minutes is enough. If I have a patient who comes to me and they are really small, we may be working a little more aggressively on rehabbing the vaginal mucosa. We may use the dilators for longer periods of time or more frequently until we get them to a maintenance point where they're not having as much pain or they're not having as many UTIs. Um, so it really depends on the patient, but anywhere from um, two to three times a week more or every other day, if you're in that severe category, just until we get you to the point that you can do a maintenance of a couple of times a week. What is your response from patients when you tell them this? Because I know when patients get to you, whether they don't necessarily had to have had a gynecological cancer, They've had some type of cancer and they're emotionally broken. And right. what is the reaction when you tell them, hey, you're small, and then they say, well, it's painful. And then you start telling them you need to go buy a dilator. I mean, they're I all, all over the spectrum. 
I mean, some of some patients are extremely um, relieved that there's something they can do that they can get their life back. Um, and others are just like, like you said, when you talk to your friend, well, I'm not using it, I'm not doing it. So um, it really depends on the patient and their motivation. Because let's face it, this is a lot of work. Um, and it, it takes sticking with it. It's not something you can do one time and stop, especially for patients who've had radiation in the vaginal area. That radiation alone causes those tissues over time. And I have seen patients with cervical cancer treatment who've had radiation completely close their vagina. And then you can't get there to test to see if they may have um, a recurrence of the cancer. Well, then what do you do? They end up with hysterectomies. And it's very difficult to do a hysterectomy after being radiated uh, in the pelvic area. So it's a little more complicated. This is so sad to hear this whole snowball because there, when I talk to women, I travel and speak and there are so many women suffering in silence there. And, and there are some women I know who've reached out to me, who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and they are literally making decisions because they're scared from other women who've told them your sex life is going to suck um, your vagina is going to have muscle, you know, atrophy. And I've recently had a patient reach out to me and she said, I don't care what my doctor says. Mind you, she's in the high risk category and also has the BRCA gene says she is not going to take hormone receptors. She doesn't want it to impact her sex life or her marriage. So there are women making decisions that could, that could impact their life because they don't want to impact their marriage. Right. And that's sad. So to that patient, I would tell her, you know, let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the uh, percent of patients that recur and then what percentage decreases or the use of your medications decrease your risk of recurrence. Um, and if it decreases at 2%, it may not be worth it to you. But if it decreases at 25%, you know, it's going to be worth it. Um, and there are some medicines, the, the one that I referenced, the CERMA referenced, um, uh, when we were first starting that does not show a, um, reversal of the, of the aromatase inhibitors. Uh, it, it affects the vaginal mucosa, but not the breast tissue. And that has to do with those receptors. It, it has receptors only for bone and vagina not for the breast. What does so, that mean? When you, when you say it has receptors, this type of medication, what does it, it mean? Affects when it affects the, it, it stimulates, it's there. We, we talk about receptors being, uh, or medications being agonists or antagonists. Agonist means they promote mm -hmm. whatever receptor that uh, they attach to. Antagonist means it blocks those receptors. So most of your aromatase inhibitors are blocking those receptors so that um, the breast tissue is not exposed to the estrogens, whatever they are. Um, most of the, uh, this particular medication at, is an agonist for the vaginal mucosa and the bone receptors, but it's an antagonist to the receptors in the breast. 
So it works very similar to the aromatase inhibitors in that regard. So that's the one that I said is not approved by the FDA, but we have been studying it for seven or eight years after the FDA approval. And all of our data following patients seven to 10 years does not show an increase in breast cancer recurrence using this medication. Interesting. I want to talk about one other thing. I know we're running out of time. I could talk to you for hours <laughs> because you're so amazing and insightful. I'm learning more and more. Um, there, Because there is a market, because one in eight women get breast cancer and so many women are on these, the hormone receptors, they have the vaginal atrophy. Obviously there's going to be a market to produce products that are to make money. So now we're hearing of energy based devices. What are your so thoughts? Energy based you're, devices. You're talking, about, you're talking primarily about um, companies that um, have laser treatments for the vagina so that they can stimulate collagen growth. Um, and the way this works is it, it's a light beam that actually destroys microscopically and causes microabrasions to the vaginal mucosa. And then the mucosa goes through a healing process. Um, these are not recommended uh, for patients who've had um, chemo radiation. It can actually cause more scarring. Um, it's a temporary uh, treatment option at best. Um, it lasts maybe a year, a year and a half. These treatments are very expensive and are not covered by insurance. So this would be an out-of-the-pocket expense that you would have to undergo about every 18 months if it worked for you. But the downside is that it could make things worse. So it's not recommended for treatment. I can't hear you. That is good to know. It will save all of us some money. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So what do you say? I know a lot of patients, before we go, if you have any last um, words or of encouragement, because when patients go through what cancer survivors go through and it impacts their intimacy, their sex, their vaginal function overall, they may not even get to the doctor's office because they don't want to deal with the fact that it's it's traumatizing if they're finding out that they know it's painful, they don't want to go through the exam. And so compliance, which we call in healthcare compliance of people stop going to the doctor. So yeah. before we go, what bits of advice do you have people to women suffering in silence saying, I'm just not going to go to the doctor? You know, that's heartbreaking to hear because there really are um, things that we can do to help treat these patients. My recommendation to them would be to not suffer in silence, but be diligent about finding a physician who's knowledgeable about treating these issues and knows the data, knows the different options available, because every patient's going to be different and every patient's going to need to be treated maybe just a little bit differently. Um, so I encourage the patient not to suffer in silence, as you've said. Um, there are things that we can do. There are non-hormonal things that we can do. 
There are new options coming on the market. Um, urogenital atrophy and menopausal symptoms is one of the booming markets right now for industry. Um, there will be new things coming out in the next three to five years that will help. And just find someone who specializes in menopausal medicine, and they will have the tools to help you if you're a cancer survivor as well. But if you can find somebody that specializes in post-cancer treatment uh, symptoms, um, talk to your oncologist. They know who we are in our communities, um, and they can help you access care uh, and prevent this. Yes, and, and that's great advice. Of course, we know there's an access issue. And, you know, a lot of times patients, a whole nother podcast we're going to be doing on the survivorship care plans. Like your oncologist is done with you. Your PCP doesn't know what to do with you. And not everyone can find a Dr. Reed like you. And so <laughs> those people fall through the cracks. And our goal with our podcast is to educate and empower people so they can look for a doctor like you who's well-versed in this and can talk in a manner that they can understand like you're doing. In fact, before we go, I'm, I'm working um, as on a committee with the University of South Florida and they're focused on Latinas because there's such an impact on the marriages because of the machismo, I'm Latina, so I'm part of this committee and they're studying Latin women and the divorce rate and the intimacy issue after breast cancer. Sometimes the men don't want the women to get rid of their breasts, but they need to. And then it affects their marriage and they're not having sex. Then they're not having it enough or not having it right. And it's a big problem. So there's a big study going on. I can't wait to share the data when it comes out. Um, but for you, Dr. Reed, you are simply amazing. And um, I can't wait to have, I don't know if people know, but your husband is also, he's a medical oncologist and he is yeah. brilliant, a researcher. So eventually we're going to have both of you on to talk about <laughs> genetic testing, when to take your, when to have a hysterectomy, you know, there's so much to talk about, but um, thank you for giving us really the information of the secret, I guess the inside story on this, what I call the darkest secret of cancer that nobody's talking about. And I want women to know you are not alone. You are suffering in silence, but I guarantee you, I would say 98% of the women who've gone through cancer treatment, if they've had some sort of radiation or chemotherapy, or they're on an estrogen receptor, they have pain too. And there, nobody's talking yeah. about it. So yeah. no, you're not alone. So thank you, Dr. Reed. Our goal is for all, everyone listening to stage free is to help you master survival. The journey is complicated. In fact, it sucks. Sometimes it's tough to get the answers. It's not easy. So I'm honored to have access to doctors like you so I can share the knowledge I'm learning with everyone else. So the journey is hard, but we hope you feel informed from our podcast and we will share the next podcast next week. Thank one you. Next, one oh. last phrase, one last comment yeah. uh, to the patient. Remember to find a physician that's going to look at you as a whole. And that includes the psychology of the disease, helping you deal with that psychologically, acknowledging the fact that there is more to a person than a body part um, and helping you through some of those traumatizing uh, issues. To that, I say amen, because psycho-oncology is a whole, that would that can be another podcast we can do. It's a whole emerging <laughs> field. And I was just part of a, another research project on this. And they talk about that but when people are depressed, they don't stay on treatment. They don't stay in treatment. So it pays for the healthcare system to find a way to help us mentally. Yeah. You know, I have PTSD. You know, I suffer with depression. 
you see me cry when I come into you because you do see the whole patient and um, we have to treat our whole mental health and right. starting with improving our relationships at home is a big step. So thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. We can't wait to share our next podcast. Thank you, Dr. Reed. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Stage Free. Join us every week for a new podcast featuring thought leaders and experts who will help cancer survivors not only survive, but ultimately thrive throughout treatment and recovery as they learn how to master survival. Learn more about us at armorupforlife.org.